thing to do. Last week we had Rob Parsons here um, sharing a message on a theme of don't lose heart. He was he said he uh, hoped to bring us a, a message of of encouragement. Anyone who was here last week knows that he did just that. If you didn't have a chance to hear that talk just yet, we, we made sure it's on the, the website. Get, get on there and, and listen to that. Uh, I think you'd be much encouraged. Throughout the autumn, we've had a series running in the beginning, uh, studies in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible story. And towards the end of that series, we said a number of times that it had become quite hard going because uh, four addresses in a row or four texts in a row dealt with the fall, Cain and Abel, with Noah, and finally with Babel. And uh, if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the story of Babel together, you'll remember we had a sense that in Babel, the pattern that had been recurring didn't fully recur. In each of the other stories, there had been human sin. God had acted in judgment, but then God had, had done something, some gracious response. But in Babel, all we got was the human sin and the judgment, and the story seemed to end without any sense of God's grace. And it left us wondering, at the end of that story, has God had enough? Is he fed up? Is there no more grace to come? Is it exhausted? And when we thought about that briefly, we said last week, or or a couple of weeks ago, actually, Babel isn't a very good story to to leave standing on its own. It it feels like the end of the beginning. The, The rest of the Bible, right down through Abraham, the Old Testament, tells of new waves, new waves and new waves of God's grace. So we we find that the the cycle actually repeats itself. God is repeatedly gracious. The people, unfortunately, play their part quite reliably. They're uh, repeatedly uh, sinful, repeatedly fail. And from a human perspective, I don't know, reading the Old Testament feels a bit like that. You know that film Groundhog Day, where you feel like you you relive the same events over and over and over again. Reading the Old Testament can feel a lot like that. As we read through centuries of the history of God's people, we just go round in circles, it seems like, and we're thinking, if God's going to do anything to break this cycle, he certainly hasn't done it yet. You come to the very end of the Old Testament with just an an escalated sense of that feeling of frustration, of longing for something to happen. It's like we're at Babel, only it's, it's even worse. We're, we're still waiting and waiting and waiting. Richie did a great job at the start of her service of telling us that the, the church understands itself It always has. The people of God have always been waiting for Jesus to come. Well, we might say, but but we're Christians. We live after Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. So therefore, we don't wait. We have everything that we need in Christ. That's true. But it's only kind of true. There's still plenty of room for waiting in the life of Christians, people who live in the light of Jesus. If you read 
towards the end of the New Testament in John's Revelation, he finishes the whole Bible with repeating a phrase, Come Lord Jesus. There's a sense of anticipation, even in the earliest Christians, that they they want to see Jesus again. They want to, to have more of him than they currently have in their lives. They're waiting for him to do something in their lives, in their communities. And folks, for that reason, I think this season of Advent is well worth committing ourselves to. A period where we admit that we're not as close to God as we might want to be. That there's not as much of him in our lives as we would, uh, we would desire. And so we wait for him to, to come again in a new way and to, to rescue us from our groundhog day. So this season of Advent, beginning on this fourth Sunday uh, before Christmas, is one of those annual rhythms that the church has established to allow us, to help us, to facilitate this waiting. This first Sunday of Advent this year, I want to show you, I hope this is going to work. Uh, fellas have had a, their fingers are crossed down at the back desk. Pretty much everything else we've tried with technology hasn't worked so far this morning, so we're hoping this will work. I want to show you a video uh, from a song by Deacon Blue. They're one of my all-time favorite groups. Now, if it seems a little gratuitous for me just to pause a sermon to play a song by one of my favorite pop groups, well, it, it would be if, if it wasn't one of the best Advent songs ever written. So, Bethlehem Begins. Just in case you're wondering, that video wasn't right either. <laughs> Somebody has kidnapped all vocal, vocalists from our videos today. If you know where they are, please let them out. Um, don't know what happened there. Um, I was, when I was considering using that, I know using a, a, a video in church it has its pitfalls. I thought, well, one good thing about that video is every word that's sung is printed. Whew! At least the three minutes. Can you imagine the, the three minutes without that video? Um, look it up on YouTube. It's a, a fabulous song and a, a great video. Ricky Ross asked a question right at the start of that song. Tell me once, tell me twice. How is it that we begin again? It's a good question. Good question if you've just studied right through to chapter 11 of Genesis through the fall, Cain, Noah, Babel. How do we begin again? The opening verse unfolds and Ricky asks, do we start off by clearing up the mess or just forgetting? The way some people try to kid, you'd think we're better off pretending. Just how far we can go without working out the ending. Our culture has no real answers to what's wrong in our world. Rather than trying to clear up the mess, uh, we try to forget about it. We try to distract ourselves. Rather than trying to work out how this story is going to end, how it could end in a way that's good, how it could have a happy ending, we're given to pretending. And throughout the remainder of the song, uh, Ricky Ross lets his Christian faith do the talking. He says, a miracle is the only thing that's going to work here. 
He takes us with the, the soaring chorus onto the Judean hillside that starry night and he says, you've got to go back to Bethlehem to begin again. As I say, it's a a fabulous Advent hymn, an invitation to go back to Bethlehem, back to the baby, but much more than the baby, the baby who becomes the man, Jesus Christ, the only one who can help us and help this world to begin again. In order for us to come back to Jesus, we're coming back this morning to Luke's Gospel. Uh, We studied the first chunk of Luke's Gospel about a year ago, and we looked at the first nine chapters in a series that we called The Savior of the World. We discovered there that Jesus healed people and he saved them from their sin. He's the one who saves us in all the ways that we need to be saved. I should warn that although we're going back to Jesus this morning, uh, we're not going to be returning to the, the Christmas, the birth narratives. We preached those last year. Have a look on the website uh, for the podcasts of those. Um, search under Luke's Gospel and you'll find those. This morning we're starting a second series in Luke's Gospel. And we've used the natural divisions of the Gospel to, to give us our series. So um, Everything that we did in the last series, chapters 1 to 9, it has to do with the early part of Jesus' life. Um, That's his birth, his early life and ministry in Galilee. And now in chapter 9, verse 51, a new section of the gospel begins. And we're told there that Jesus sets out for Jerusalem. So section 2 of Luke's gospel records Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Section 1 seemed to focus a lot on the stuff that Jesus did. A lot of powerful miracles, a lot of action. Uh, Section 2, as he journeys to Jerusalem, focuses a little bit more on what he says. Uh, So bear that in mind as we uh, get stuck into this series today. So we're going to look today at a section from chapter 9, verse 51. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, uh, page 1040, right through to chapter 10, verse 24. 36 verses, quite a lot of material, quite a lot of different incidents, and Jesus saying a lot of different things. But I think what what happens here and what is said, um, there are some common themes in an overall direction. There's even a very surprising and beautiful conclusion. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. Luke tells us that Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't doubt that Jesus experienced joy many, many times in his ministry. Um, The interesting thing is, this is the one place in the whole New Testament when we're told of Jesus experiencing joy. I find that intriguing. Makes me wonder, why? Makes me wonder, what makes Jesus happy? We'll come back to that and we'll land there, but only after we've had a look at the, what's happening in the passage. Jesus, as I've said, he's setting off for Jerusalem and he decides to send people out in front of him to prepare the way. So chapter 9, verse 52, messengers to prepare the way as he goes through Samaria. Chapter 10, verse 1, 72, in pairs to go to every town and place where he's about to go. So Jesus calls people to follow him, that is to come behind him, to be with him and learn from him how to live. 
But he also sends people out in front of him, and that is people to be his heralds, to prepare the way for him, to share the good news about him with other people. We thought about this a little bit just over a year ago in our Fruitfulness on the Frontline series. One of the ways in which God wants each one of us to be fruitful, to live good lives for his glory, is to be messengers of the gospel. People who will carry his message wherever we go. Well, that's really the territory that this passage, I think, is dealing mostly with. Jesus sending people out to be his messengers. I think we can learn uh, three things, at least, in this passage. The passage shows us that if we're to be messengers of the gospel, we can't be half-hearted. We should expect rejection, but also that we can experience some success. So the first of those three ideas, carrying Jesus' message, it's not for the half-hearted. Closing verses of chapter 9, if you let your eyes rest there, you meet there three different people, and they all want to be on Jesus' team, or they're considering that. One guy, verse 57, says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus points out, well, I'm not staying five-star here. Jesus invites a guy to follow in verse 59, and he says, I can't. I've got my older dad to think of. Verse 61, a third guy says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't reject any of these guys, but he does draw their attention to the demands. The demands that he makes of those who follow him. It's a forward-looking life. A life where God's family is my first family. Where everything about Jesus' calling supersedes our identity, even in our own families. It's a life of sacrifice in place of comfort. That's what it meant to follow Jesus back then. Why would we expect it to be any different now? A few guys in the church took a a small uh, step this week of of sacrifice. Friday morning, we moved a lady in a nearby housing association from her apartment on one side of the car park to the other. Um, It's a situation we'd become aware of. We simply put an invite out on the email. We hoped that a few people would be able to help. About 10 or a dozen of us showed up and were able to to move this lady over. Just a small step, a sacrifice, an hour or two of our time. But it was lovely to see people putting their money where their mouth is, just showing that we're willing to be inconvenienced to show Jesus to a watching world. So messengers of the gospel can't be half-hearted. Now a second reality. Um, Messengers of the gospel will face rejection. Jesus doesn't hesitate to share uh, that reality with his followers. So in the opening verses of chapter 10, he gives them all sorts of advice about how they should go. How they should go on their evangelistic tour. What to take with them. Where to stay. What to do when they arrive in a town. But he also says that they should be ready for rejection. Look at verse 10. But when you enter a town and aren't welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. 
people and communities will reject Jesus Christ. And that's not just hypothetical. Jesus and his entourage already knew what it is to be rejected. The closing verses of of chapter 51, there's that moment where they try to enter the Sumerian town and they're refused entry. I don't know about you, but I find that really difficult. I don't like rejection. I think that might be a particular personality flaw of mine that I will find it hard to put myself out somewhere if I think or fear anything less than a positive outcome. I'm fearful. I fear rejection. If I've understood this passage right, I think... I might need to get over that fear of rejection and actually there's, there's a reason given here why I might. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. I need to get over my fear of rejection, particularly in sharing Jesus with people because... It's not me they're rejecting. They're rejecting Jesus and they're rejecting finally the Father who sent him as the Savior of the world. I've got to be a little bit less precious about myself and how comfortable my life is for me. And I've got to recognize the, the importance of of people being given the opportunity to hear about Jesus. I need to worry less about them rejecting me so that they have the opportunity to accept him. By the way, I, well, you've probably picked it up already. I'm not saying that I find talking about Jesus easy. I'm just saying that I'm not content to give up trying. Listen to a brilliant podcast recently about using more questions in your conversations with people rather than always saying stuff to them. Using questions to draw them out, to help them think about life, its meaning, and, and maybe even about Jesus. We'll put a link on the, this week's email to let you access that podcast. I'm just counting up in my head. There's quite a few things going on that email by now, isn't there? There's a Home for Good video. There's a Deacon Blue link. There's a, yeah. You need to set aside an evening to watch all this stuff. A third thing from this passage about being messengers of the gospel. You'll know success. Messengers of the gospel can't be half-hearted. They will face rejection, but they can, and this is a glorious idea, they can meet with success. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Do you see what they're saying? We did it. This thing that you chose us for, this thing that you've been training us for these months or or years at this stage, we did it. It's 
says they did it in his name, that means they did it with his stamp on them, in his power, in the Jesus way. Folks, have you ever thought about that? That if Jesus calls you to do something, he will enable you to do it. You too can be the people who come back and say, we did it. This thing that you've called us to. Isn't that what Paul says? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how he put it in his letter to Philippians. We thought there this morning about this call to be messengers of the gospel, to go out. I want to wrap things up this morning by coming back to that intriguing little question that we asked based on verse 21. It says there that Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. And we asked, what makes Jesus happy? Well, after all that we've looked at, him sending out the twelve, them coming back with reports of their success, you'd imagine, well, well, that's the thing that's made him happy. He's happy because his guys have gone out and done the thing that he sent them to do and they've succeeded. That seems to be the trigger for Jesus' joy. Well, I think the closing verses of the passage confirm that. Look at verses 21 to 24. Jesus thanks his Father for revealing himself to these ordinary, everyday disciples, these little children, as he calls them. He's revealed himself to these guys. He's privileged them in an amazing privileged them in an amazing way. Prophets, kings, would love to have seen what they have seen and do what he's done. They have been fruitful. They've lived fruitful lives for his glory and it brings Jesus great joy. We don't think about that enough, do we? That our lives could bring joy to Jesus. Have you ever considered that? Even the possibility of that? We say that God loves us. We say that he's forgiven us. But too often it still feels like we're, we're thinking of him as tolerating us. Putting up with us. In this passage... Jesus is the proud father standing on the touchline as his son scores the winning try. In this passage, Jesus is the mum who puts her three-year-old daughter's painting on the fridge with fridge magnets and wouldn't swap it for all the fine art in the world. Jesus looks at these guys and they bring him joy. It's amazing. I've recently found a new hero. His name is John Amos. He's dead now. In fact, he was never alive, except in the minds of Marilyn Robinson, the author who created him, and all those people who have read her astonishing novel, Gilead. Gilead takes the form of a, a letter a long letter, a life's account, written in 1956 by John Amos. He's a Congregationalist pastor in Gilead in Iowa. 
At the time of writing, he's 76 years old, and he's writing to a young son born to him late in his life. He's sharing the wisdom that he won't get a chance to share with his son because he knows his life will soon end. At one point, the old man tells his son about the joy that God finds in us. Calvin says somewhere that each of us is an actor on a stage and that God is the audience. We're artists of our own behavior and the reaction of God to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental. Calvin's image suggests how God might actually enjoy us. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. God might enjoy me as an actor on a stage, as the beautiful painting on a wall, as some other wonderful piece of art. All of my life I've known that God looks on my life, that nothing's hidden from him. I've just known that. But John Amos has got me thinking how God might actually enjoy me. And look in this passage has told me it's true. He's shared an account of Jesus looking at a bunch of regular, sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding followers. I'm an actor on a stage. God's in the audience. Well, well, he is the audience. And I can make him smile. Makes me want to play my part as well as I possibly can. Makes me want to learn my lines better. Speak them and live them with more conviction. As I move through this life, I want to learn more and more how to make Jesus Christ smile. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that image which Richie shared at the start from Zephaniah, the idea that you rejoice over us, you sing over us, you find joy in us. Lord, we, we don't really believe that, or at least not much of the time. So today's one of those days we need you to come and change our minds and our hearts. We need you to help us believe that your word is true. Lord, would you help us at least believe that it's possible that you could find joy in us. 
And then, Lord, make it the greatest passion of each one of our hearts to bring you joy at every turn, with every action, and with every breath. Lord, these disciples were learning how to live for you in the world, how to go ahead of you, how to share you with other people. Lord, we need your help with that too. Help us each one to start where we are and to to want to grow so that we can put a smile on your face. Our loving Heavenly Father, Jesus, our brother, Spirit, God among us now. Amen.